You're listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go, a podcast that'll change how you think and change your life. I'm Willie Horton and I'm a psychologist. I've been helping people change their lives since 1996. Broadcasting from the French Alps and delighted to have you along. Let's take this week's step in the right direction. I've been repeatedly asked over the last couple of months to record an episode of this podcast on what might loosely be described as family matters, how to deal with family situations, how to deal with dysfunctionality in the family. But, you know, family matters as a double meaning. Because on the one hand, we have to deal with family matters. But on the other hand, families do matter. Or do they? Let's explore this as we go through not just this episode, but next week's episode too. Because before I explore how to deal with family matters, how to navigate the sometimes madness of normal crazy families, we need to look at where all this madness comes from. We need to look for the roots of resentment, where the seeds of self-sabotage are sown, where during our childhood, there is what might loosely be described as an ever so gentle erosion of the field of dreams. As, As young children, we have the life gradually sucked out of us by the odd throwaway remark, the odd little thing that we think happens to us. You see, we can't discern whether something is good or bad at that moment in time when we're young and impressionable, and therefore we'll take in anything and everything. That's why the old expression that young children are like sponges is absolutely spot on. We soak up everything, but the unfortunate thing is that we're more adept at soaking up what we perceive as the negative than the positive, and then in later life, we have a predilection to select negative over positive experiences when we do come to resent or self-sabotage. So for starters, I want to explore normal crazy families. If the American Management Association, the University of Chicago, Harvard, if all these bodies are correct, if 96% of people are not in control of their own state of mind, if only 4% of people are in complete control of their emotions, so to speak, then 96% of people could be described as normal, crazy people. Now, by the way, some people take offense at my use of that phrase, but really, If you're not in control of your own state of mind, or let me put it more bluntly, if your automatic mind is in control of you, surely that is a definition of lunacy. And it is certainly a recipe for dysfunctional behavior on a day-to-day basis. If all those academic bodies are correct, and the research goes back more than half a century at this stage, then what are the chances of you finding a family of four or five people who are actually fully functioning human beings? 
it's almost no chance at all. As somebody on a slightly different note said to me recently, he said, I've just realised that all of the management meetings and board meetings that I've been at throughout my career were circuses of madness. I was surrounded by normal crazy people who, for most of the time, weren't even in the room. They were off in their own little worlds. And this is even before the days of mobile phones and laptops or cell phones, where people are actually doing something else whilst they're supposed to be at a meeting. He said, how could any board or management team be functional when the chances of there being five or six functional people in the room are so remote. It's exactly the same for families, only worse, because you can resign from your board position. You can resign from your job. You can't resign from your family. Or can you? There's another question that we leave hanging there for next week. That's twice I've said something along those lines. However... Let's get down to brass tacks here. Let's explore why families are dysfunctional. Let's explore, as I said, the roots of where resentment come from or where the seeds of self-sabotage are sown. Start with a very simple story of a client who came to me a number of years ago who told me that when she was growing up, she had a dreadful image of herself. There was a saying at home when she was three or four years old. This girl's name is Sandy, by the way. And the saying was, and her father would repeat it regularly, and from time to time her mother would chime in, Sandy is eating all the biscuits and Lucy has lovely legs. Sandy and her sister, Lucy. Now, what does that say to either of them or both of them? It is just a little funny remark that their parents used on a regular basis, but a child of three or four years of age doesn't have a sense of humour. We know for a fact, by the way, that your subconscious mind doesn't have a sense of humour. So if you joke to your subconscious mind, as some people actually regularly do, oh, I'll end up a pauper or I'll end up having cancer. You know what happens as a result of what is known as the constant observer absorbing that stuff on a regular basis. It's even worse when it is a child taking in this information, because as we said a minute ago, children soak this stuff up. Sandy is eating all the biscuits and Lucy has lovely legs. As I said, Sandy was my client. When I met her first, she was obese. She had no self-confidence. Why was she obese? Because she was eating all the biscuits. Because she had a sweet tooth. Because her sister was the good-looking one. Her sister was the one with lovely legs. She was the ugly duckling. Now, that wasn't the case at all. It was just a little family jingle, if I can put it like that. But these little family jingles mean something serious and deep-seated to the little people at whom these family jingles are directed. So Sandy was obese, because Sandy was eating all the biscuits. The interesting question about this is, was Lucy a confident, successful woman because Lucy had lovely legs? No. Lucy ended up suffering from depression. Now, we don't know what messages she took on board because she isn't my client. And Sandy couldn't tell me because Sandy isn't Lucy. 
the key thing I want you to get out of that little anecdote is that these are where the seeds of resentment, the seeds of competition in families are actually sown. This is where we learn about who we are and not just our place in the world, but more importantly at that age, our place in the family. I've loads and loads of examples of this. Let's talk next about what I would call golden child syndrome. Sometimes my client was the golden child. For example, I have worked for a number of years with a girl called Pauline. Pauline's mother told her that she was so beautiful that nobody would be good enough for her. So she ended up with nobody. So at 54 years of age, when I met her first, she was literally tearing her hair out, wondering why she hadn't settled down like her friends and she didn't find her soulmate like some of her friends had. She was actually programmed to meet nobody. Now, there is a classic example of the subconscious mind taking things at face value, literally. And that's why, for example, now as an adult, if you're talking to yourself, and we all talk to ourselves on a daily basis. If you're talking to yourself, even if you're joking with yourself, the subconscious mind will simply take at face value what you're saying and internalize it, even now as an adult. And in particular, as an adult, if you are saying things to reinforce what you already knew about yourself as a result of the stuff that you took on board when you were young and impressionable. And generally speaking, if I go back to my introductory remarks in today's episode, when I talked about the automatic mind being in control of the normal crazy person. The automatic mind is running on the stuff that it learned about you when you were young and impressionable. So therefore, if there's any self-talk going on now, and I mentioned self-sabotage earlier on, if there's any self-talk going on now, it is bound to be based on what the automatic pilot in your mind is actually thinking at this moment in time. And as we know from previous episodes, the automatic pilot in your head is always using the same 70,000 thoughts on a daily basis. And those 70,000 thoughts haven't changed since you were young and impressionable. So we need to be careful. So let's go back to what I've described a minute ago as golden child syndrome. More often than not, my client is not the golden child. In other words, they're the person who's been told, why can't you be as good as your brother? Why can't you be more like your sister? Why aren't you intelligent like your sister? I have one particular client who recounted to me many years ago how he had innocently broken his brother's toy. And the brother in question was the golden child of the family. And the father got so annoyed with the golden child's toy being broken that he grabbed my client by the ankle and dangled him out a window upside down. That is the kind of thing, by the way, that really leaves an impression on a young and impressionable child. And, and that is an extreme story, but I have loads of stories, you know. For example, one particular client of mine being sent to boarding school when they lived five minutes from the school and his older brother had never been sent to boarding school. His older brother, who even in later life was of great interest 
to his father, whereas in later life, right up to the time his father died, my client was of limited interest to his father in comparison to his brother's magnificent deeds. Did the father or mother set out to damage the child or children in any of these circumstances? Of course they didn't. Most children are brought up in a loving, caring environment. It's the little throwaway remarks, the family jingles, the little episodes that leave lasting big impressions on the mind of children who are thrown into the same pot together and often end up competing with each other, or in some cases actually being set off against each other. One particular client whose mother constantly played her off against her sister to the point that the two of them would nearly kill each other, obviously not literally, although I'm not too sure about that. And even in later life, they are the worst of enemies rather than what they should be, the best of friends. Ah, yes, fathers and sons, mothers and sons for that matter, but fathers and sons, particularly in the agricultural world. I do a lot of work in the agricultural sector have done for years. I'm involved in a project in the UK called Focused Farmers. You've probably heard me mentioning that before. And one of the really big issues, obviously, in the farming world is who will take over the family farm. The resentment that that breeds, you know, I had a conversation with one particular farmer a number of months ago who was talking about how her father, who had been a farmer, had left in his will the entire farm to her elder brother. And her mother said to the, the father, her husband, she said, what about the three girls? He said, oh, it's a couple of grand for each of the girls, so they'll be fine. They'll marry farmers too. And everything will be sorted out. Think about how that actually impacts on the interaction between the siblings in a family like that. Now, I've seen much worse, by the way, than just that. I've seen dominant fathers bully boys and girls, with the result that there ends up being a dominant son who manipulates their sisters, bullies their mother, and tears the family apart. It all comes from the parents in their turn. I'll come back to what I mean by that in a moment. The parents in their turn being mindless, being normal, not being in control of their own state of mind, allowing their automatic pilot throw out these family jingles or do these silly little things that leave a lasting impression and literally cause families in later life to self-destruct. But there are more simple things not just related to uh, parental behaviour or misbehaviour, if I can put it like that. I recollect one particular client telling me that he grew up in a family with five siblings. In other words, there were six of them. And they developed what he called lodger's arm syndrome, otherwise known as SOS, stretch or starve. They were competing for food. Now, they weren't actually competing for food where it was scarce. Three of the children in the family thought there was a daily competition going on for who could eat most. The other three in the family were completely oblivious to this madness going on between two boys and one girl. So there's a classic example, by the way, of even children 
of seven or eight or nine years of age having their own version of reality. There were two completely different versions of reality every dinner time, every evening. Of course, it could be the fact that one or two or three of those children who were competing for food had been told that they eat all the biscuits. <laughs> There's just a variety of different examples of the same thing. Let's come back to one of the key points that I want you to understand as a result of today's episode. Parents say stupid things to children mindlessly, thoughtlessly, because they're normal crazy people, because they are using their minds automatically, because they were brought up that way by their parents in their turn, as I said a minute ago, doing exactly the same thing. And the really interesting thing about pretty much every client that I have worked with over the years who had children was that after about an hour or two of our initial conversation, there'd be this sudden stop in the conversation, sometimes accompanied by tears, where the client would say, what have I done to my young children? Now, of course, the situation is always retrievable. Everything can be repaired. It's never too late, but it does require people taking control of their own state of mind. If you don't take control of your own state of mind, and if you're a parent, you will be like your parents before you who went around spewing out the most common form of parental abuse, what we might call random acts of heroic heartache. You're bloody stupid. What's taking you so long? You're not the brightest, are you? He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, is he? Little throwaway remarks. As I said a minute ago, stuff that parents say that as adults, because they're mindless, they don't even know they're saying it. And even if they did know they were saying it, because it's just a throwaway remark, they wouldn't remember it five minutes later. The child will remember it five decades later. As a result, of comments like that. And they're real comments from clients. Or, or I'll give you a couple more just to add a little salt and pepper to the top of this meal. You know, everyday mindlessness, like one father regularly said to his son, he'll never get a woman looking like that. He's the male equivalent of Pauline that I mentioned earlier on. Pauline, who was so beautiful that nobody would be good enough for her. Or another one, a client of mine who would regularly play tennis with his best friend and his father would say to him just as he was going out the door, I don't know why you bother playing tennis with that guy. You always lose. And of course, he always lost. And in fact, when it came to any important tennis match, he always lost. The mind is listening all of the time. Now, before I go any further, you will note that I have steered clear of something very deliberately in this podcast, and that is physical abuse or sexual abuse of children by their parents. Because I'm talking in this podcast about normal crazy people. And, you know, even though, as I said a few minutes ago, some people take offense at that statement, you can take it with a grain of levity. It is a remark that simply encapsulates the normal madness of everyday life. There's nothing normal, though about physical abuse or sexual abuse. And I'm not steering clear of it because I haven't dealt with it. I've dealt with plenty of it with clients over the years, but it is an outlier 
in comparison to the normal dysfunction of normal families. So I'm just going to park that. If somebody wants to talk to me about that separately, you know where I am. You can email me or you can get me on Facebook Messenger. The key thing is that we've been talking so far about simple everyday mindlessness. 96% of people are mindless. As we've said in numerous podcast episodes over the last two years at this stage, you have a choice every day. And the choice is a simple one. It's a black and white choice. Am I present or am I absent? Am I mindful or am I mindless? Because until you become mindful, you are going to stay mindless. And by the way, that is the natural state of the adult mind. We've covered that in so much detail over the last 98 podcast episodes leading up to this one. The fact of the matter is that this simple everyday madness has a result that plays out in everyday life. The result of all this simple mindlessness is dysfunctional individuals, people who self-sabotage, people who have a chip on their shoulder, people who think they're in competition with their siblings, people who actually are in competition with their siblings, fighting over, for example, an inheritance. The number of times I've had to deal with those kind of situations over the last 27 years is, is, is horrible, actually. But you end up with dysfunctional individuals and dysfunctional families. And by the way, we've only been talking in this episode about what the parents do mindlessly to their children. We haven't talked about family circumstances like, for example, an only child who is usurped by a late arrival. You know, my sister is eight years older than I am. And she tells me that for the first eight years of her life, rightly so, she believed herself to be the centre of my parents' world, an only child, because actually she was an only child. I disrupted her life no end, apparently. <laughs> to the point where apparently when I was an infant, she parked my pram under a rose bush so the bees that were getting their nectar would actually go out of their way and sting me. But anyway, it's a, it's a minor anecdote. We, we we haven't killed each other since. But there are those circumstances as well. As I said, children who are, in fact, only children until a late arrival comes along. Children who have grown up in difficult circumstances. A good friend of ours grew up with a seriously autistic sibling. Children who grow up in an environment where their siblings need more attention see, regardless of the circumstances of their siblings, they see themselves as getting less attention. And that goes into the mix of what do people think about me? How do I feel about myself? And we're back into low self-esteem and self-sabotage. What about where there is genuine lack, financial lack in families? As, as distinct from the story I told you earlier on about Lodger's arm syndrome, what about where there is a lack of food? What about where there isn't enough to go around and sometimes more resources are given to one child in preference to the other? What does that do to both children? What does that do to their relationship in later life? And we haven't talked at all about what siblings do to each other. There's a whole body of research in relation to how siblings impact each other in what 
developmental psychology calls the developmental niche of the family. We've really only covered the throwaway remarks of parents. And that's probably enough for now, because what it does is it enables us understand where, as I said right at the beginning of today's podcast episode, the seeds of self-sabotage are sown, where the roots of resentment take hold. And where, through being told you're stupid or you can't do this rather than you can do this, there is a gentle erosion of the field of dreams. We talked a few weeks ago about how children are told when they are young and impressionable. You know, a little boy says to his father, I want to be an astronaut. And the father says to him, don't be so ridiculous. You're going to be an accountant just like your father, puffing out his chest. God help us accountants. We'll leave that one hanging there. And of course... We haven't talked about how teachers impact children as they develop, how peers in the schoolyard or in the playgroup impact children as they develop. And the reason I've deliberately left them out is this conversation today is all about families. This conversation is all about what happened in the past that outpictures into the dysfunction of families in the present. And the key takeaway from this, in advance of our next conversation about how we deal with situations as a result of there being dysfunction in families, the key takeaway is that families are, like 96% of people on this planet, normal crazy people. And the first thing we have to do with normal crazy people, particularly those who are close to us, is understand that they're normal crazy, understand where they're coming from, and not try to change where they're coming from, but because trying to do that will only make matters worse, but giving them a chance, a first chance, a second chance, a 15th chance, maybe a 20th chance. Because the more we choose mindfulness, the more we give the opportunity of the mindless around us the opportunity to understand that they can behave in a different way too. This isn't by something we say to them. It is by the way we carry ourselves. It is by the way we behave ourselves. It is by the way we turn up to the here and now. Through our presence, those around us can be uplifted too. The tide of our presence can raise the level of the boats around us too. Some people don't want their boat raised. Some people are willfully drilling a hole in the bottom of their boat so they sink into the abyss of all the normal crazy madness of the 70,000 thoughts every day. Some people, as I said about Lucy earlier on, will end up depressed. And some people love being depressed and wallow in their depression. It's kind of worn with some kind of badge of honour. But the key takeaway from this is that we're always in everyday life dealing with normal crazy people. The more I can stay present, the more you can stay present, the more we develop our ability to behave appropriately, and as I said a moment ago, through our presence, perhaps raise the game of those around us too. That is a preface to what we'll talk about in the next episode when we talk about navigating dysfunctional families. Thanks for listening. I hope you understand a bit more now about 
your siblings, and perhaps most importantly, about yourself. I know that through these episodes, through this podcast, we're on a journey into mindfulness, but we must remember where that journey started. It started in mindlessness, ordinary, normal, everyday mindlessness. We're on a journey to an understanding and an experience of life lived to the full, life as it should be. Talk to you again next week. You've been listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go. To get involved, join me in my Facebook group, strangely enough called To Succeed, Just Let Go. And for more information, visit www.willie-horton.com.